0: Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's page 326 in the Bible provided for you in the pew. This is my last sermon on the life of David. This is actually our 99th sermon in this study. Next week, Ken McCurd will bring this study to a close with the 100th sermon. I mentioned that these last... Three chapters of 2 Samuel, 22 through 24, are an appendix of sorts that summarizes David's life. We looked at, uh, first, finishing well as it relates to living in hope. That was chapter 22, or excuse me, chapter 23, where David's song is recorded, the last words of David. Then last week, finishing well in love. This week, finishing well in grace. During July. We have uh, the McKnight Lectures, you'll be hearing more about that and then and I'll be away some in July on study leave as well as time with family, but beginning in August we'll begin in the Gospel of John as we commend the greatness of God in Jesus Christ as seen through John's unique Gospel, but here we're focusing on finishing well and we only finish well by grace, We know that we're saved by grace. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace saves us, but the Bible teaches that grace also keeps us. And not only does grace save us and keep us near to God, grace changes us. And it's appropriate for, for us to ask the question, how are you growing in grace this morning? In Second Peter, Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. James says, God gives a greater grace. Are you growing in grace? Well, we'll see in this chapter that God is putting in place the permanence of his grace manifested in the establishment of the temple. In some ways, you could say First and Second Samuel is moving Israel from this nomadic people who are now settled into the promised land from worship in the tabernacle to worship in the temple. In the last chapter, David will purchase the, thresh, the threshing floor from Aronad, And that will be the floor of the temple, which is God's monument of grace. But we'll see here that though grace is free to us, grace is not without cost, and it's not without punishment. In many ways, as you grow in grace, you recognize that grace is more terrifying than you've ever imagined, even though it's more beautiful than you could ever imagine. We're going to see in this text references to the wrath and anger of God. The parallel passage in 1 Chronicles speaks of Satan's lurking influence to deceive the people of God. And we will see punishment for sin. Where's grace in this passage? It'll take eyes of faith to see, but I'll ask you this morning... Where are you complacent in your walk with God? Where have you become compromising and where do you need a fresh vision of God's grace? I pray that because we've been brought to God by grace that we will grow in grace and we must grow in grace as he gives us greater grace. Reading first in 2 Samuel verse 1 of chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And God incited David against Israel saying, Go number Israel and Judah. Strange verse, we'll unpack that. But the king said to Joab, this is David. Joab was the commander of the army who was with him. Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of my people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord the king will see it. But why does my lord the king delight or desire this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Now from verses 5 through 9, nine months pass where the military uh, directive of Joab is to number the census of all the tribes. Then we come to verse 9 where Joab reported that there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 5,000. Continuing on in verse 10, But David's heart struck him after he numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough now, stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And he said, Behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came to David Uh, That day to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray together. Lord, open our eyes that we might see the spiritual battles that take place even in our own soul. And we might see the deliverance of the Spirit. Lord, use your grace to not only comfort us, but also to challenge us to live fullness in Jesus Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonathan Edwards was known likely as the most influential preacher in the history of our nation. At the time when Edwards preached, they record what's called the First Great Awakening. If you go to an American history book and you look up Jonathan Edwards, it usually will always speak about the sermon he's most famous for. It's entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards preached that at his own church there in Cambridge, but there was some response from his members, but he preached it at several other churches throughout Boston, and there began to be a movement of the Spirit. Now, our country was founded by some who were seeking asylum, Christians who had been persecuted for their faith, but there were others that had come to this country as deists that did not believe in the God of the Bible, and others that were just here to find opportunity. What shook them in this sermon out of their lethargy is a clear vision of God's holiness and the recognition that he's not to be trifled with. In the early 1970s, there was a awakening that called the Jesus Revolution. And the book that probably, besides the Bible, had the strongest influence on this movement was, was J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. If you haven't read Knowing God, that book besides the Bible is the most important book that I have read in my own spiritual journey and in my discipleship. But in Knowing God, J.I. Packer talks about how does God's grace operate in our lives? And it's in the chapter called The Goodness and the Severity of God. This is what we see in this text here. We see grace in operation. We see the goodness and the severity of God, and he's not to be trifled with, we will learn. But Packer answers these questions. What is the purpose of grace? The purpose of grace is to give us an ever deeper knowledge of God and an ever closer intimate relationship with God. The purpose of grace is to give us a deeper knowledge of God and an ever intimate closeness in our relationship. So how does God, Packer ask, execute or prosecute his purposes in grace? And this is what he says. Not by shielding us from the assault of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Not by protecting us from burdensome and frustrating circumstances. Nor even by shielding us from troubles that are created by our own temperaments, personalities, Or even our own sins, but rather God exposes us to all these things so as to overwhelm us with the sense of our own inadequacy and to drive us to completely cling to him. He uses the illustration that when a child is walking with a parent along in the forest along the trail, the child wants to explore into the trees in the woods, and doesn't want to hold the parent's hand. But then when the child hears a noise, the child hears some movement in the distance, the child runs back to the parent, takes that hand, and is reminded that their safety is the nearness that that parent provides. Packer says God is constantly comforting us by confronting us with warnings. These warnings that we see in this text are like those warning signs on a busy interstate at night. The lights are flashing, warning, warning, warning. This text is here not only for David and for Israel, it's for us. And it's a warning that we're not to Ignore the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is both warnings and reward. Now you'll notice in the text the phrase, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And oftentimes when you see in the Old Testament that phrase, it's unsettling for us. We thought God was a loving God. And here it says, the anger of the Lord burned. But it should be a comfort to us because God hates sin and evil. We would not want him to be indifferent. We would not want him to be casual in sin and evil. You think about the most horrendous act of cruelty that you're aware of. God stands against that cruelty, and he hates sin, and he hates the destructive nature of sin. And here it says, the anger of the Lord burned. But the confusing question here is it says that God incited David to take the census and then God turned around and held David accountable for his disobedience it is confusing isn't it that God incited David against Israel Israel was in sin and David was in sin Well, what does this mean God incited Israel well to make it even more complicated if you read the parallel chapter in first chronicles in chapter 21 it doesn't say god incited david against israel it says satan incited david against israel so what is it is it god or is it satan is it a contradiction in scripture no it's not i think it's an insight if you read first chronicles 21 there's a heightened awareness of the spiritual warfare that's going on in this battle that we see in Samuel and the chronicler points to this reality that at all times in our battle against sin lurking behind our earthly battles with the world and the flesh is this serpent the devil and he is inciting others and our own hearts against God and when it says that Satan incited David God incited David, what that word actually means is that God removed the restraint that he held uh, uh, over Israel and over David, and when God removes the restraint that he holds by his grace, then we do evil only in our hearts, is what the scriptures say. Romans 1 speaks of this, that God gave those Godless people over to the lust of their flesh. What did it mean? God incited them. He removed his restraint. And that's what's happening here. God is removing his protective grace over David and Israel, and their sin uh, is being exposed here. And Satan is inciting evil and tempting, much like in the garden of of uh, uh, excuse me, in the Garden um, of Eden, you recall that the serpent came to Adam and Eve, and the serpent asked Eve, "What did God say? Did He really say that?" And the serpent was distorting the truth of God, and Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and it said that they hid from God. They hid to cover their nakedness and they hid from God. We're told in Genesis that God came pursuing them. They were hiding and God was seeking. God is pursuing. And here God is pursuing David and he's pursuing Israel by the uncovering of their sin. Many of us, when we think of grace, we think of grace as some kind of warm-weighted blanket that just comforts us no matter what we do. Now, it is true that God loves us no matter what we do, but it's not true to say God loves us and it doesn't matter what I do. It does matter what you do, and as you obey God, you experience the reward of relationship. And as you disobey God, as you uh, ignore his grace in your life, you bring judgment and consequences into your life. God incited, we see here, by removing the restraint. And what is the sin? Well, for David, apparently it was pride or insecurity. Uh, Satan is always lurking to see pride and insecurity in our life to incite that sin that we might disobey God and yet God is going to speak God is going to seek God is going to confront he's gonna confront our sin to liberate us from the destructive consequences of our sin our sin is individual and God will judge us individually now, not all difficulties in your life and not all trouble is the judgment of God, but we see in this text some difficulty is the judgment of God. God will also judge us collectively. This is Israel that's being judged for their sin. What was Israel's sin? The text doesn't directly say, but likely it was the rebellion to follow Absalom and the rebellion to follow Sheba. God's anointed king was David, and Israel rebelled against God when they followed Absalom. It also means that there's a collective blessing, both individual when we obey God and when we as a body, as a family, as a church, even as a nation, as we obey God. I think the explanation is best seen in Exodus chapter 30 about why David was being judged. Turn to Exodus 30, it's on page 83 in the Bible provided for you in the pew. Though Numbers tells us that God commanded Israel two times to take a census, in both of those times, one had to do with the inheritance of each of the tribes into the land to be able to number those. The other was uh, after a plague, Here, we're told that it's not sin to take a census, but I believe this is where David is being judged. Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, "'When you take the census of the people of Israel, "'then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord "'when you number them, "'that there be no plague among them "'when you number them. "'Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give to the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so to make atonement for your lives. So the sin of David is that he spent nine months, who knows how much time, uh, we know how much time, who knows how much money and the, uh, the attention of the military to take a census, and he did not tell them the most important thing is atonement. They need to be reminded that the most important thing is that they need their sins taken care of. He apparently wanted to count the army to know how he would stand against the enemy, which the Lord had forbidden and said, your only hope is my strength, not your own strength. David, even in the Psalms, has declared that it's not chariots and horses that we trust in, but we trust in the Lord our God. And yet here, because of his insecurity or arrogance, David fails to obey God. We read in Psalm 19 just how powerful God's word is in confronting our sin. We read, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold. Yes, much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, this is most important. By them, thy servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. David recognized that God's grace is his word given to us both to warn and to reward. I was, uh, well, let me move to point number two. How does this move David? It moves him to confession. This confrontation moves him to confession. If you notice in verse two, he says, it says that David's heart struck him. That's conviction of sin. And then it goes on to say that he confesses to the Lord, I have sinned greatly for what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Conviction of sin is this inward component, subjective of the heart, like a scalpel where God points to us where we have sinned. Confession is this outward, objective action where we declare to the Lord, this is where I disobeyed you. We need both the conviction, the inward touch, and we need confession, the outward action. I want to remind you, though, that the Holy Spirit only convicts. The Holy Spirit does not condemn. If you have a general sense of guilt, if you feel shame, if you feel unworthy, that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is bringing light to a place that is causing you to stumble, that is hindering your relationship with God, that's keeping you from seeing with spiritual eyes the work of the Spirit. The Spirit will convict us, John says, of sin and righteousness and judgment, and our response is to confess that. As David confessed this iniquity and said, I have done foolishly, we have that promise that God will cleanse us and He will cleanse us from our foolishness and protect us. But conviction is specific. I was at General Assembly and I talked to Zach and Sheffy e. Rogers. Zach's the new pastor at Grace, PCA Church in Peoria, Illinois. He followed Brian Chapel, who's now our stated clerk. Zach's 32 years of age he was the campus outreach director and the church called him to be the pastor of the largest PCA church in the Midwest. So we were talking, we had lunch together and I asked him about what God was doing in his church. He said it's a youth movement, God's bringing a lot of young people to our church not just through campus outreach but a lot of young people. And I said well what are you learning about Gen Z and the youth movement? He said well They think that they want the gospel, but they don't understand the gospel. They think that they want grace, but they don't understand grace. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, then Sheffy spoke up. She said, it's like this. This is what they think a great sermon is. The pastor stands up and says, I'm awful, I'm awful, I'm awful. Oh, by the way, you're awful, you're awful, you're awful. And oh, by the way, we're all awful, we're awful, we're awful, but you know what? It's okay, God loves you. And we think that's grace. And I said, well, what should we be preaching? He said, well, not that we're awful, we're evil. Not that we're resistant or broken, but that we rebel. That's what the Bible says. Because when we admit, as David says, I have done very foolishly in your life, I'm not just broken but I stand in need of a savior. I need someone who can forgive me of that sin and cleanse me from that righteousness. And we see our need for our savior and that's the power of grace. But confession is not easy. Confession is very painful. Those that I've talked to or heard confessing their sin, they recognize that they have betrayed God They are begging God to change them. They are asking God to use discipline to mold their hearts to be more responsive to Him. They're waiting on God. Confession is deep and real, but it is cleansing. You know, tonight we'll have healing prayer after our communion service. Why do we do healing prayer after communion? Well, James 5 says that If you are in need of healing approach your elders ask for prayer and ask them to pray for healing but it also says confess your sins and ask for healing it could be that your difficulties may continue in your life because of unconfessed sin it could be because of rebellion now not all problems and difficulties are directly tied to our rebellion, but some are in this text. We see the consequences here because of their sin. Even in God's judgment, though, we see mercy. If you'll notice that God asks David what will it be? He gives him three choices for the consequences of his actions. He says three years, three months, or three days. It's a question of longevity. And then he says, famine war or disease it's a question of severity and I as I studied this I wondered why did God ask David to determine the judgment well later we'll see that God asked Solomon what he would desire when he becomes king of the people and Solomon asked for wisdom I believe God is testing David's heart and David's answer is He throws himself on the character of the Lord. I'm in deep distress. I fall into your hands, O Lord, for your mercy is great. He says, Lord, whatever you desire, I don't want to fall into the hands of my enemy, but whatever you desire. And we're told that God judges Israel and David and these consequences, even then God is merciful. He relents he tells the angel to stop before they move to Jerusalem even in God's judgment we see that he's merciful lastly I think the main lesson that we see is that grace confronts us grace leads us to confession grace uses consequences and then grace amen And then grace consecrates us. You see, David consecrated two ways. He intercedes for the people by grace, and he becomes an instrument of grace. Verse 17 says, he says, Lord, I have sinned and done wickedly, not these sheep. What have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David is speaking of the need of an intercessor. He's saying, if I was the Messiah these people needed. I could stand between God's holiness and the people's unworthiness, but I'm not holy, and I'm not merciful like a Messiah that's needed. He was pointing to the reality that the only one that stands between God's holiness and our sinfulness is the living Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. They need a priest, David says. They need an intercessor. But then, we'll learn next week, David becomes an instrument of grace. Now, here's the story. You'll hear more about it next week. But the threshing floor is the floor of the temple. It was a huge rock. And it became the floor of the temple. And Arana said that he would give it to David without cost. Why does David say, no, 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 I will pay for this? He says in the end of chapter 24, I will offer nothing to the Lord that cost me nothing. He is saying, I will pay the atonement tax. David is recognizing he could have collected thousands of shekels to point to the greatest need that the people of Israel had. And David said, no, 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 I need a savior who will sacrifice, I need to point the people to the need for atonement. And so he pays generously and joyously. That's a sign that grace has touched your heart. You don't feel burdened about giving your time and your talents and your treasures to the Lord. You give joyfully, you give graciously, and thankfully, it is interesting that Exodus says that it's the rich and the poor that are all to pay that tax. They're all to have an opportunity to be a part of what God is doing. Let me close by telling an illustration that Ray Ortland used to tell. At the end, I'm going to attempt to improve upon the illustration. Uh, I hope that it is an improvement, and um, I will apologize to Ray if it's not the case. But Ray used to tell the difference between law and grace by telling this illustration. He says, before we were Christians, we were married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in some ways, but he did not understand our weaknesses. He would come home every evening and say, did you do what I said? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete all the tasks on my to-do list? He would make demands and share expectations. As hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy him. But his remedy was all the same. Be better tomorrow. Try harder. We didn't, and we couldn't. Then Mr. Law died, and we remarried, this time to Mr. Grace. Our new husband, Jesus, would come home every evening. He would see what a mess we are. He would see that the children were still being naughty. He would see that the dinner is burning on the stove. He would see that we had not been faithful to all of our chores. And he would sweep us in his arms and he would say, I love you, I chose you, I died for you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And our hearts would melt. We'd never understood such love. We expected him to despise us and reject us and humiliate us, but he treated us as if he really loved us. Being married to Mr. Law never changed us. Being married to Mr. Grace changes us deeply from within. This is the aspect of how grace changes us. Now that is true and powerful but I want to take it a step further. I think that what happens to one who's been loved this deeply is that we begin to anticipate that Mr. Grace is coming home. We begin to think about him during the day and we begin to work and serve all together differently because now this is the place where we fellowship and meet and are joined together in joy. And so what we do does make a difference and does change because we are preparing a place where we are going to celebrate the love that he has for us. That's how grace changes us. Grace not only forgives us when we fail, but it causes us to want to anticipate that's why we obey God we want to anticipate the joy of relationship to him let me illustrate it this way I mentioned that in the garden of Eden it was a hide and seek where when our first parents sinned they hid from God and they said that they wanted to cover their nakedness in shame but grace changes us now is that We don't wanna hide from God. Grace changes us in this way. My grandson, Michael, loves to play hide and seek, but he doesn't call it hide and seek, and he wants to play it over and over and over again. He says this, find me, Papa, find me, Papa, and then he goes into another room. If he can't see me, he thinks he's hiding, and I walk around, and where's Michael, where's Michael? And I just hear him giggling over there and his eyes are closed, he can't wait. He can't wait for me to find him. And just as soon as I find him, he said, do it again, Papa, do it again. Find me again. That's how grace changes us. No longer do we hide from the one who loves us. We want him to find us. We want him to restore us. We want him to confront us with his sin. We want to read the Bible and we want to be convicted of our sin. We accept the consequences of our sin because he's breaking away like a scalpel all the evil that keeps us from seeing him as our great reward. Listen to Psalm 19 again. The law of the Lord is perfect restoring the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure enlightening the eyes. The testimonies of the Lord, Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The judgments of the Lord are clean. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Let's pray together. Thank you, dear Jesus. You are our high priest you have called us into the presence of God and we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace because we receive mercy and we can find grace to help in time of need thank you that we don't have to hide from you anymore we want to be under the conviction of your word we want your spirit to free us and liberate us to obey you joyfully we want to be those who give sacrificially of our time and our talents and our treasures yes we wander yes we fail we don't do it perfectly but Lord Jesus we pray that you would allow us to experience your love in a way that we love you with your everlasting love strengthen us we pray and if there's anyone here today Lord that doesn't know your love that is hiding from you that feels hurt and misunderstood. Lord, would you touch that heart? Would today be a cleansing, a freeing, a liberation for salvation? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.